Five years ago in uh, 2003, some of you know that I spent three months in Budapest, Hungary, pastoring a, uh, an international church there. I, I went to that church uh, invited by um, Ronnie Stevens. He asked me to go pastor that church. It was three of the richest months of my life, and I have never gotten over it and um, continue to benefit from that wonderful experience. About um, a month and a half after I came back, the city of Memphis lost a great asset uh, in that Ronnie Stevens, who was then the pastor of First Evangelical Church, uh, returned to the mission field where his heart had been for some time. He now pastors that same church uh, in uh, Danube International in Budapest, Hungary. Uh, I count him a rich and dear friend, and every time he's in the States, I do my best to uh, insert Gracie Van into his busy schedule and was able to this time. It's my privilege to have Ronnie Stevens among us this morning. Now, while you're turning to John 2, this is a famous text. Two things happen in John 2. Um, the wine, the water gets poured out so that something else can get poured in. And the animals get thrown out of the temple so that the substitute for the animals, the sacrifice, the final sacrifice, can take center stage and can stay in the temple. And um, let me just... First of all, before we read the text, say what it's not about. It's not about drinking, okay? Uh, you don't go to John 2 to find out whether a Christian can drink or not. I suppose you can offer some cor- corroborating argumentation from John 2, but you really settle that question in 1 Corinthians, not John 2. Uh, it's not really about marriage, except insofar as all stories are most stories are about marriage. Did you know that? I remember um, reading many years ago A War and Peace by Tolstoy. It took me longer to read it than it took Tolstoy to write it. And in the preface, the critic said, this is a book about marriage. And I said, this isn't a book about marriage. This is a book about the Napoleonic invasion of Russia. And I read that book. And I realized, this is a book about marriage. And then I realized most of the great classics are about marriage. The Iliad is not just about war. The Iliad is about a man trying to get his wife back. The Odyssey is not just about wandering. The Odyssey is about a man trying to get back to his wife. Job isn't just about suffering. Job is about a man trying to get his wife off his back. Uh, marriage permeates all the great stories, the classical stories. But even though there's a wedding here, it's not really about marriage. It's about the beginning of signs. We, we take the title of the message from the 11th verse, John 2.11, which says that, that John says, this was the beginning of signs. Let me just say that um, um, in the other Gospels, you see the normal word for a miracle or for a sign. You say, Would you bring me in that book right there? I wouldn't even do this, but um, 
Mr. Greer went all over the place to find this for me, so I don't want to. I don't want to skip it, even though I forgot it. Uh, the other gospels use a Greek word that that, that means miracle. Uh, there's another word that's used that means power. There are one or two other words that are used that are translated miracles. John uses a special word when he talks about a miracle. He says sign. So what that means is that when Jesus works a miracle, it's not just something impossible. It's, it's a sign that points something. You don't need to know any Greek to know what that means. If it's a sign, it means that something is being pointed to. Someone is being pointed to. The one who's showing the sign. The, the sign worker, the miracle worker, is significant. And that's the point of the miracle. One of the greatest proofs that the New Testament is true is the study of the miracles. Not that the message is authenticated just by the fact that miracles are worked, but because of the character of the miracles. They're not just magical. They're not just mystical. There is a moral grandeur in the miracles of the New Testament. There's a substantive content in the miracles of the New Testament, which are different. They teach us something. They point to someone. It's almost impossible to read any copy of Christianity Today, any issue of Christianity Today, without a quote by C.S. Lewis. As a matter of fact, I would almost say it is impossible. It's almost impossible to hear a sermon by Ronnie Stevens without a quote from C.S. Lewis. And in the current issue, I bought it at Davis Kidd Bookstore two days ago, the current issue of Christianity Today, there is this quote by C.S. Lewis. The fitness of the Christian miracles and their difference from the mythological miracles lies in the fact that they show invasion by a power which is not alien. They are what might be expected to happen when nature is invaded not simply by a god, but by the god of nature, by a power which is outside her jurisdiction, that is the jurisdiction of nature, not as a foreigner would be outside jurisdiction, but as the sovereign would be above jurisdiction. Those miracles proclaim that he who has come is not merely a king, but the king, her king, that is the king of nature, and our king. Jesus came to the wedding to do something that the bridegroom should have been able to do, but couldn't. But he was there not as a rival to the bridegroom, but as the bridegroom's friend. This is a story of the beginning of signs. It's not the first supernatural thing that he did. He read Nathaniel's mind in the last chapter. He saw him when no one was around. That's supernatural. That's a miracle. But this is a sign in the sense that it's a public authentication of his person and his office. What it means is the Messiah has arrived. And he's come to do something. In honor of God and his word, let's stand up for just a minute when we read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The wedding feast in Cana of Galilee the beginning of signs. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. 
When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Lord, we believe in you too. Manifest your glory through the study of your word. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. First thing we see in verses... um, one and two is uh, the, the the setting for the launch. A ministry, a public ministry, is about to be launched, and here's the setting. You know, one of these politicians that your pastor was praying about earlier uh, launches his campaign. He chooses the setting very carefully. Many times he'll go home or go to the place where he grew up. Jesus had been in Judea. He went to Galilee, probably to a relative's house. And John tells us the context of the launch. He tells us the the time. It was three days. Boy, that's a powerful biblical theme, isn't it? The third day. The third day after what? Well, the third day after Jesus started walking from the scene of his baptism where John was when he was calling those five disciples on the way, John and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And it took them about three days to walk from where they were down at the Jordan River up to Cana of Galilee. And on the third day, they got to the wedding. He tells us the place. It's Cana of Galilee. He tells us the event. It was a wedding. You can argue that Jesus' career in ministry was kind of a recapitulation of the history of sinners but without sin. Or the recapitulation of the history of Israel, but without failure. And by recapitulation, all I mean is a kind of retracing of the steps and a recovery of what was lost. For instance, what's the first thing that happens in Jesus' life? He goes to Egypt. Well, that's a retracing of the steps of the Exodus. The thing is reversed. Then, at least on the public stage, he's baptized. That's almost a picture of the uh, ark and the, um, the earth, the purged earth, now pure, coming up out of the water, dripping. And then, remember, the dove was sent out from the ark trying to find a pure place to inhabit, a clean place, a place where the dove would not be defiled. And the Holy Spirit, the third person, alights upon the second person 
incarnate. This is a pure place where the Holy Spirit can inhabit. And then what happens? Well, he goes into the wilderness where he's tempted as the second Adam. Only the first Adam fell. But the second Adam stood. And one of the things that was ruined because the first Adam fell was marriage. There was a shame which emerged, and they covered themselves up. And there was a blame which emerged. You know, it was that woman. You know that woman that you gave to me? She gave me the fruit, and I ate. And so the Lord Jesus goes to reenact the fall, except he doesn't fall, and he goes to a place where a marriage is beginning to play a positive role. And you see, he's retracing these steps. I don't say you have to interpret his life and ministry like that, but you could. He goes to a wedding. He goes because he's invited. That's the setting of the launch. The second thing that we see here is a transaction between persons. The person of the Lord's mother and the person of the Lord himself. And we see that in verses 3 and four, and, and I want to I want to accent the personal because I want to say that there's something going on between her and him that's not immediately obvious. It's not even obvious after we look at it for a long time, and, and I'm going to show you why. Uh, she makes an observation. She says they have no wine. Now, for the life of me. All I see there is a declarative sentence. She simply makes an observation. He evidently hears a request. Look at the way he answers her. He basically says, what am I going to do with you? My time is not yet. It's not time for me to do what you want me to do. Now, let me just say that when you study the the, the Gospels, if you'll get this down, it'll save you a lot of confusion. Namely this. Jesus does not respond to words. Isn't that shocking? Jesus does not respond to words. Jesus responds to thoughts. Jesus doesn't respond to sounds. Jesus responds to to the heart. Jesus did not respond to what she said. Jesus responded to what she wanted. There's so many times you read the Gospels and it looks like um, it looks like Jesus changes the subject. Have you ever noticed that? Let me tell you something. Jesus never changes the subject. Jesus is the only one who knows what the subject really is. Because Jesus is the only one who knows what the person is really thinking. As a matter of fact, you see it again in chapter 2. The Jews come to him, verse 18, they say, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered, Instead of them, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. What? Where did that come from? Why did Jesus say that? I'll tell you why he said it. Because they already wanted to kill him. They were already thinking about killing him. So he didn't address what they said. He addressed what they're thinking. He said, you can kill me if you want to, but in three days, I'll rise again. And they said, what are you talking about? 
Oh, I'm talking about what you're thinking about. The true agenda that you have, that you're trying to hide from me. You can't hide anything from me. And so there's this transaction, this transaction, this, this personal uh, exchange, which is so hard for us to penetrate. She just makes this innocent observation, and he comes back on her a little bit. If it wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ, we might be tempted to, to use a word like harsh. We don't use that. Severe, we don't use that. It was appropriate. Everything he does is perfect. His response was perfect. He was responding to what she really wanted. What she was really saying was this, you know, your mother's not getting any younger. And only you and only I know who you really are. Wouldn't this be a great time to show everyone while we're all here together? And he says, no, 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 no. Now, let me tell you something great about Mary. I only hear an observation when she says they run out of wine, what she's really saying is, show them who you are. And when I look at his answer, I only hear a no. <laughs> I can't see anything of the answer but a no. I see the word not. That word is classed among those words which you and I would call negatives. Grammarians and linguists would Say adversatives. It means no. I look at that that answer backward and forward. The only thing I could see here and see is a no. You know what? She hears a yes. Isn't that amazing? Somehow she fathoms a yes. We'll talk about that maybe in a minute when we get the practical application. And what follows after this deeply personal exchange between the Lord and his mother, what follows, the third thing that we see in this passage, is the greatest advice in the history of the world. i got a friend, and he's rich. Missionaries are not averse to having friends like that. He was my friend before he, I became a missionary. And I mean, I know some rich people, but he's really rich. He's really great at making money. And he told me once before I went to Budapest that he'd seen this counselor who sort of specializes in people like him, and um, meaning that only a few people can afford this counselor in another state. And he told me, and, and he told me, that the counselor was a retired minister. And then he told me how much money he gave the counselor. And it it, it inspired a new idea for a sort of a post-ministry career for me. And, uh, And it was well over a quarter of my annual salary for just a couple hours. I was just, I was just stunned. I mean, how good does counsel have to be before you would pay money like that to hear it? And he told me what the guy told him. I just shook my head. I couldn't believe it. Because right here for free is the greatest counsel in the history of the world. You can't buy any better counsel than this. You can't find any better counsel than this. There's nothing that you could ever learn that would be more precious than this, more profitable than than this in application. And you see it, don't you? In verse 5, whatever he says to you, do it. Well, there's a pattern for prayer. 
when you cry out to the Lord for something, at least her heart was crying out, and she tell, he tells her no, apparently, when, when it, appear, it appears like God is not going to do what you want Him to do, do you respond like that? If God seems to be saying no to me, do I make sure I'm saying yes to God? I think, Lord, I don't think you're going to do what I want you to do, so, so I want to do what you want me to do. How's that for a great principle in prayer? The greatest, and that's the message she carries to others. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And wonderfully, he begins to command. The fourth thing we see in verses 6 through 8 is what we might call the sphere of instrumentality. All that means is that he uses us. All that means is that when he began to show signs, he used people to effect those signs. Let me tell you something. God does not need me to do his work. Jesus does not need you to do his work. I learned in Sunday school that he did. That was wrong. He doesn't. He can raise up his servants from stones if he wants. That's one of the last lessons he ever taught. He doesn't need us, but he graciously and mercifully condescends to employ us and to deploy us and to raise us up. He raises up weak, confused, clueless people, sinful people, people with a past people with baggage, people like you and me to do His work. But listen, He raises them up. If you're already exalted, if you're already self-exalted, if you've already raised yourself up, how can He raise you up? In order to raise you up, you got to be low. Hudson Taylor was once asked, why you? Why did God use you to go past the treaty ports and to penetrate the interior of the most populous nation in the world? Why did he use you? You know what Hudson Taylor said? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I was low enough. So he raises up the servants and he begins to use them in the miracle. He gives them uh, a command which is actually wearisome. Pour out 180 gallons of water. He gives them a command that is practically mysterious. Why? Why on earth should we do that? He gives them a command which was, as far as they knew in terms of purpose, was, was ultimately futile. What good is it going to do? But it says immediately. Immediately. They, they filled it all up. They filled it up to the brim. 
Um, the fifth thing we see in this passage is, is the test of personal experience. They tasted what, had, what they thought had been in the water pots, and they passed it around. And the head waiter calls the bridegroom, and he says, this is unprecedented in my experience. I've never seen anything like this. I've never tasted anything like this. This has never happened before. This is the best wine I've ever had. And not only is it the best wine, but the shocking thing is not so much that it's so good, but that you're giving it at the end of the feast. Well, of course it's unprecedented. This is the beginning of signs. This is something new. This is someone new. Now, in the few minutes we got left, here's what I want to do. I want to say, so what? How do we apply this? We, most of us here know this story. I, mean, I think people who come to the early service already knew this story. 90% of you. So what? What are we supposed to do now that we know the story, or now that we've been reminded of the story? Let me suggest two, two tracks. One is the track of worship. Did you know that worship is application? You shouldn't do anything before you worship. You can do everything while you worship. And so the the first track of application will be worship. How does this deepen our worship? What do we learn here that, that causes us to worship Him more deeply and with greater joy? The second track will be obedience. What do to to quicken our obedience. What are we supposed to do? But first, let me just say something about worship, which will deepen our worship. He denies himself. Have you ever noticed that? I told you all ago where he's been. You know where he's been? When you look at John 1, what you see is that, and John doesn't talk about the, the temptation that we learn about in Matthew 4. Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized. Matthew 4, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He walks back out of Matthew 4 through the end of John 1. He comes back to his, the scene of his baptism. That's where John utters the famous cry, Look at him, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And two of John's own disciples begin to peel off. One of them is the author of the fourth gospel who never names himself, John the Evangelist. The other is Andrew. Uh, John and Andrew follow him home. They stay with him during the evening. They tell their friends. Pretty soon, Peter begins to follow him. Pretty soon, Philip begins to follow him. Then Nathaniel gets to follow him. And the sixth of, six of them, Jesus and the five new disciples, they walk up to to Cana of Galilee. But where's he been? He, he actually, he's walking from the wilderness to the wedding, calling disciples en route. That's the trajectory. That's the way it begins. Well, what happened in the wilderness? Well, I'll tell you what happened. He denied himself bread. He refused to use his power to give himself bread after he fasted for 40 days. One thing I said over and over at First of Ann was that the second most important thing to learn in the Old Testament was that Adam and Eve did not eat the fruit because they were hungry. 
You under, when, once you understand that, you, become, you begin to become an acute theologian when you understand that dynamic. They ate the fruit because they believed a lie about God. They weren't hungry. They could eat anything. Jesus was hungry when he refused what the tempter offered. He was starving. He was famished. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. Now, bread is a a necessity. Especially when you've not eaten for 40 days. Wine is a luxury. And by the way, they didn't forget the wine. They drank it all. And yet he denies necessity to himself. He provides luxury to others, such as the character of the one with whom we have to do. Lock it in, Christian. Begin to understand it, Christian. He denies himself. He says no to himself that he might say yes and that he might provide for others. Second thing, notice that he delivers more than he promises. I thought he told her no. By the way, it wasn't his job to provide the wine. In those days, the groom... I've got two daughters and only one son. I think this is much more um, appropriate that the groom paid for everything then. The groom... The guy, I know your pastor will agree with me that it ought to still... We, we ought to do things biblically, but we don't. Um, the groom didn't mind providing for the reception because he got the girl. Jesus ends up providing for the wine, but he didn't get the girl. By the way, about two years ago, the world was beginning to be besotted with a blasphemous, uh, ludicrous fairy tale perpetrated in the Da Vinci Code. Just laughable. It would be laughable if it weren't so blasphemous. The idea that that Jesus was married, you know, the largest, most powerful cult in our country teaches that Jesus was secretly married to two women. And, um, of course, that's a lie. And you know why he wasn't married? Because he was already engaged. He was betrothed to the church. You know why he was born of a virgin? Because he already had a father. And even though he doesn't get the girl, he he provides the wine. He gives more than he promises. By the way, among pagan uh, religions, they always give less. You realize the Greek could not even conceptualize of a God giving a gift or goddess giving a gift without a catch. Did you ever notice that when you studied mythology? There was never a gift that turned out good. King Midas was given the gift of a golden touch, but he forgot that when he touched his food, his food turned to gold. And when he hugged his little daughter, she turned to gold. Paris, the prince of Troy, he was promised by the goddess Aphrodite, the most beautiful woman in the world. And you know what? The goddess kept her promise. She gave her to Paris. What she didn't tell Paris is that the chick is married. And not only does she have a husband, but her husband is a great warrior. And not only is he a great warrior, all his friends are great warriors. And that turns out to be not such a good gift. That's the way it is with the devil. 
If you're young, you need to learn that. Those gifts that the devil offers, and they are some beautiful gifts, and they look so great at first. Just wait. Just wait. The Lord Jesus, on the contrary, He tells us all the bad news up front. We're told from the beginning the hardest things about being a Christian. You want to follow me? That means a cross. If you love me, the world will hate you. All who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer, shall suffer, shall suffer, shall suffer persecution. Ah, but... And that's the last, that's the third point that intensifies our worship. He saves the best to last. We already know what the hardest things are if we read our Bibles. You know what? You can't imagine what awaits, Christian. You cannot imagine... That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.9. You cannot imagine. Eye has not seen, neither ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of a man all that God has prepared for those who love him. We get little intimations of it by the Spirit, Paul goes on to say. And as far um, as our obedience, practical obedience goes. What do we do after our worship is intensified when we realize that He's so wonderful, we adore Him. Each day discovers new excellencies in Him which prompt our deeper adoration. So what do we do? Well, I think one thing uh, that we do is we get to know Him before the wine runs out. Oh, the wine's going to run out. All those things, whether it's marriage, whether it's money, whether it's health, whether it's fun, whether it's a job, whether it's a family, all those things that you thought you could perpetuate with no reference to Him, without appealing to Him for supply and rescue, you'll find out you miscalculated to reckon without the Lord Jesus Christ, His supply, His centrality, His lordship. That's the arithmetic of a fool. Sooner or later, it doesn't usually run out at the, at the reception, but it'll run out. Get to know Him before the wine runs out. Second thing, tell Him everything. Mary, to her credit, she was just telling Him everything. Hey, you know what? They run out of wine. Tell him everything. I mean everything. Tell him what you don't like. Tell him what you regret. Tell him what you're afraid of. Talk to him about your sins. Not only the sins that you have committed, but the sins you're afraid you're going to commit again. Tell him everything. And ask him for anything. And if he says no, or if he appears to be saying no... You do everything He tells you. My time is gone. I'll just say one more thing. Um, Be careful what kind of wine you offer Him. And what I mean by that? Well, just this. Um, When we read the story to the end, we see real symmetry. What was missing at the first banquet? Wine was missing. Who supplied it? The Lord Jesus Christ. What was missing at the last banquet? Was wine missing? No, no, they had bread and wine, remember? Plenty of wine, no problem there. 
You know what's missing at the last banquet? Servants. Plenty of servants at the first banquet. There weren't any servants at the last banquet. There wasn't anybody willing to wash feet. Well, who provided the wine at the first banquet? Well, the Lord Jesus did. Well, who provided the service at the last banquet? Well, guess who? The Lord Jesus did. Because they lived with him for three years. And the only thing they missed was the boat. No one was willing to be a servant. That's the last application. Cultivate servanthood. Um, You don't have to see what Jesus says. Why do we got to pour this water out? This is wearisome. This is is mysterious. This, This is futile. You don't have to see what Jesus says. You just have to hear what Jesus says. Because you know... If you will hear what Jesus says and do what Jesus says, then you will see what Jesus does. You notice what the passage says? Only the servants knew what happened. The bridegroom didn't know what happened. The head waiter didn't know what happened. Only the servants knew what happened. And what I said, and this really is the last thing. You remember on the cross when I tell you that there's symmetry, certain things at the beginning look like certain things at the end. You know what was the last thing that happened on the cross? John 19, do you remember? This is the first thing that happens to start the signs. John 2, remember the last thing that happened? John 19, they offered him wine. He gave them the best wine. What did they give him? It was vinegar. I struggle with sin. Did you know that? Sometimes I fail. You know, I think I struggle with sin harder now than when I first became a Christian. I really believe that. That's a terrible confession to make. I really believe that. You know what? I look for help. I look for anything that will help. You know what's helped me recently? Checking myself when I'm tempted by saying, I don't want to give him that wine. I don't want to offer him that sour wine. He gave me the very best. He offers it to you too. Drink it and be saved.